You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Good morning. It is the very early hours of December 29th, depending on what time zone you're in, and you are listening to the College Football Daily, a 24-7 sports podcast dedicated to catching you up on and breaking down the day's college football news. I'm Connor Tapp, and today the day's college football news is the fact that we now know it will be number one LSU and number three Clemson facing off in the college football playoff final on January 13th, 2020 in New Orleans. So Chris Hummer is here with me to review what we just witnessed. And uh, let's, Chris, let's start with what was just the third actually competitive semifinal we've had in the six-year history of the college football playoff. Clemson 29, Ohio State 23. A lot of narratives you could pluck out of this one, but ultimately it was kind of a game of runs. Ohio State was in control early, got up 16 to nothing, had to settle for some field goals. Then Clemson went, goes on a 21 to nothing run, and then Ohio State makes a like push, but in the end, Clemson holds off Ohio State 29 to 23 and will be trying to win, the Tigers will, their third college football playoff um, uh, in, in, uh, in just a span of a few years here. So, Chris, top line takeaways from this one? Yeah, um, first, I would say that and this might be getting off topic immediately, but I think this game and 20 years will be at the heart of a 30 for 30 between Justin mm. Fields and Trevor Lawrence. Like those two guys, I don't think you can come away from this game thinking either one of them is not as advertised. Both were excellent. I know Justin Fields threw that last kind of second pick that gave Clemson the game, but um, given that he came into this game at less than 100%, both kind of lived up to the hype. And I, I took a bunch of notes during this game. Uh, there were some certainly some questionable decisions from a game management perspective from Ryan Day. Um, certainly some questionable calls that really flipped the momentum uh, Clemson's way. But at the end of the day, when the game was as close as it was, you have to look at that last drive that Clemson put together. And it mostly came together because of Trevor Lawrence. He made an excellent throw on a slant to Justin Ross. He got a really tough 11 yards on the ground. Uh, kind of showing people he's a little more than sneaky fast. The guy's six foot six and runs a four, six, five. He can move pretty quick when he's going downhill. Uh, he completed a 38 yard pass to Amari Rogers in the next play. And then he hit Travis Etienne for the uh, game winning touchdown. It was quick. It was something I think in 20 years, again, we'll look at as one of the defining moments of Trevor Lawrence's career. Kind of the first time under immense pressure and in a kind of a tight game situation that he showed he can win and this kind of kind of big stage. And I think you're just kind of starting to add to the legend at this point. Trevor Lawrence is that good. And I am super excited for Clemson uh, LSU just because Joe Burrow, uh, Trevor Lawrence is as good as it's going to get from a quarterback perspective. Yeah, I mean, the defining performance in this game was absolutely Trevor Lawrence. And it, it was not a secret coming in that he was a little bit more versatile than given credit for. But to see him execute some of the plays in the open field that he did 
on Saturday night against a competitor as talented and hard hitting as Ohio State was truly extraordinary. Um, so it's kind of it's if you're if you're not a Clemson fan, it's kind of irritating to see Trevor Lawrence like definitively add yet another thing he's very good at um, and, and and execute it. And in a high stakes situation, um, and yeah, just a absolutely immense performance from him, coming up with big throws and big plays in critical situations. Um, there were some key moments in this game. Uh, I we we talked about a few of them glancingly already, but pretty early on in this one. It, it was a very physical game, and some key players were kind of in and out of this contest. Early on, it looked like T. Higgins might have been knocked out of the game entirely. He eventually did return to the game in the second half. J.K. Dobbins was in and out of the Ohio State locker room throughout this one. And, I mean, Ohio State's offense is just so much less when he's not available. But he, he did eventually return. Uh, so it uh, man, this was a pretty physical contest here. Yeah, certainly a lot of injuries, and I think I, I'm sure we'll get to this in a little bit with the LSU side of things. But it's a good thing that Clemson has essentially 16 days to get ready for the national championship game because this was physical. I think Ohio, Clemson would be feeling this in a week, and they certainly did not escape without injury. Uh, Justin Ross and T. Higgins both exited the games at certain points for Clemson to really critical pieces of their wide receiver corps. Um, Trevor Lawrence got hit plenty of times more than probably seen him get hit all season. Uh, he plays behind an offensive line with four, uh, four seniors and a five-star left tackle. And he was still getting banged up by quite a bit. Um, I think Ohio state's defense man for man is probably the best in the country. And we saw Clemson kind of get it done against that unit. So I think Clemson passed in a season in which we haven't really seen Clemson other than the North Carolina game have to pass a hurdle of that nature. Um, Clemson made the plays when it matters most and um, got a little lucky, you might argue, with the targeting call uh, that I will mention. I'm sure we've mentioned already and then uh, roughing the punter penalty that kind of changed the game as well. But Clemson's yeah. a national champion. And they yeah. kind of... Go ahead. No, yeah, you can, make, you can make an argument that the turning point in this game was when Ohio State settled for three field goals in the first half, but really the moment when it kind of felt like the dam broke on Clemson's momentum breaking through was Sean Wade being ejected for targeting. Uh, it was a I, – I, I, Chris, I'm curious to know what your take is on the call itself. It seemed like my takeaway was it is correct as the call as the rule is the correct call as the rule is written, but you could maybe uh, raise some objections to maybe we should change the rule to kind of account for intent. So I don't know. General take on the Wade targeting call, how big it was, and whether the call was right in the first place. Well, I think there are two. Uh, there are two takeaways there. One is. Like there are two forms of targeting, level one and level two. In my opinion, that should have been a level two targeting penalty. Or maybe I'm getting the verbiage confused, but essentially the less serious of the two results in a penalty, but not an ejection. And generally the less serious of the two is kind of given out if the contact or the kind of motion towards the offensive player is not considered uh, malicious or on purpose, like it's a bang bang play. I would argue with Trevor Lawrence ducking as he was in that play, essentially to kind of negate some of the blow of the sack that Sean Wade was put in a position 
as a defensive player where you're trying to hit a strike zone and it's a very tall strike zone. When that strike zone drops, it makes it harder not to connect there. And I think losing Sean Wade in that game certainly impacted the way Ohio State went. Either way, like the 15-yard penalty that shifted the game, uh, Clemson went on a 14-0 run quickly after that. It completely shifted the momentum. But in terms of targeting as a whole, I really... Like, I'm sure, I think you're probably in agreement with me on this, uh, reading your uh, tweets earlier today. But it's just, there's so much gray area within the rule. And a play like that can swing a game in such a significant fashion that I think, I know it's a, I know it's a, play, it's a bang bang play. And I know it's super important to kind of eliminate some of these hits from football and to make the game safer because the game needs to be safer. But the defensive players are put at such a disadvantage in those situations. And there are so many plays where the defender goes to make a play, the offensive player moves maybe two or like two or three inches even, and it completely changes the way the hit looks and the way the hit comes about. And the defensive players are such a disadvantage in those situations. Sean Wade was running free on that blitz. That should have been another kind of stamp for Ohio State and what had already been a 14-0 lead. Because Trevor Lawrence ducked a little bit and Sean Wade came in a little high, it completely altered the course of the game. And that doesn't really seem right to me, but it is the way the rule is written. So I guess you kind of got to take it as it is on that one. Yeah, Clemson ends up scoring a touchdown on that drive after it's extended. And then later in the game, a roughing the punter penalty uh, keeps an, a Clemson drive alive that also ends up resulting in a touchdown. So Ohio State fans, rightly or wrongly, going to wake up pretty mad, going to be calling into those sports talk radio stations pretty pissed off about how the calls went in this one. So, uh, Chris, anything else we need to add on Clemson and Ohio State before we take a break here? No, I think super compelling game, and uh, I think it lived up to the hype, which was nice, as you said earlier, in the college football playoff semifinals, which don't always quite do that. Yeah, and particularly with Clemson and Ohio State, it was kind of nice. I, I don't know, like the in the consistency of Ohio State in this decade and kind of the rise of Clemson uh, toward the in the second half of this decade have been like two of the defining narratives of college football over over whatever we're calling this decade, the 2010s. And so it was kind of nice to see them play the last game that will count toward determining a national championship in this decade. Uh, I, thought, I thought it was kind of a fitting end. So we are going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we're talking LSU, Oklahoma, and kind of weighing in on how we felt about the fact that these games were played on December 28th instead of New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky, are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are, number one, I think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen. Welcome back to the College Football Daily. Chris, now let's move on to the Peach Bowl played earlier in the afternoon between LSU and Oklahoma. The Tigers win this one 63-28. I mean, and really that that scoreline is, it makes it seem closer than it was. LSU was up uh, 59-14 to at one point here, and the amount of 
there was a tweet going around. I think they handed out a sheet in the press box of all of the records that LSU broke just in the first half alone, and, and it filled up an entire sheet of paper. Uh, Joe Burrow has 493 yards passing, eight total touchdowns, and it was just a completely dominant performance. Uh, Oklahoma did not was not really able to maintain the pace. We kind of saw a little bit more of the error-prone Jalen Hurts against, uh, admittedly, a very tough challenge in this LSU defense, which I think has been considerably underrated given that the talent that we know is on is on that side of the field all season. Uh, so, Chris, uh, just your general impressions of this one. Yeah, Joe Burrow is really good. I know that's uh, breaking news to the world, but I was looking at the box. I mean, I watched the whole thing. But I was looking at the box score after he went 29 for 39 and I was shocked he had 10 incompletions. He just, mm. he was, he was insanely good. He, I, I wrote about this a little bit earlier, but I think there's an argument to be made that Joe Burrow is the most consistent and reliable weapon in college football history. And I, I know that sounds hyperbolic and that knows it sounds like I'm kind of just like riffing after the moment, uh, trying to talk about what he did. But when you consider for the season, he's on pace to shatter the NCAA completion percentage record. I think he's sitting at 77.8 right now for the year, which means he is completing almost 80% of his passes. And when you consider that he's completing almost 12 yards attempt on top of that, it means on three-fourths of his throws, he's good for first down. That's just It's impossible to kind of just put Burrow's season into words at this moment. What he did today was absolutely incredible. And I realize Oklahoma was shorthanded, but this is also an Oklahoma team, as much as people want to make fun of them, that hadn't given up 300 yards passing all year to anybody. The defense was much improved. I realize they were shorthanded. Uh, Dorian Turner yells uh, suspension or injury kind of proved to be the defining moment of this game before it even started because his backup, Justin Broyles, was just exposed over and over and over again. And Credit to LSU for kind of picking on the guy because they, they took advantage of that every time uh, with Justin Jefferson. But Joe Burrow is simply a maestro today, and he's been that way all season. And for yeah. a while there, I was kind of I was looking at his numbers. I was like, can he keep this up? I was at the Texas game in week two. Joe Burrow was on fire that day, and quarterbacks usually kind of taper off as the season goes. But he's been this good throughout, and you can make a strong argument that this is the best individual season by quarterback in college football history. And given that this game in a couple of weeks is going to take place in new Orleans, a place where it's going to be pretty LSU heavy and Joe Burrow is going to have his uh, fans out in droves. It's just, it's hard to see Joe Burrow slowing down. And I know I'm just like going on and on about Joe Burrow. LSU played an excellent game outside of him, but it's, it's almost hard to talk about anybody else, right? Like he's just incredible. Yeah, I mean, Justin Jefferson had a pretty incredible day, which, which you mentioned. 14 catches, 227 yards, four touchdowns. He was definitely part of this record-setting performance for the LSU offense. And yeah, your, your point about Joe Burrow is really interesting. I mean, even with the greats, there are individual games where you look back and say, oh, you know, they, they didn't really have their A game, but guys around him kind of stepped up and, 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 and made up for the uh, – dip in 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 his in his production but that you're right I mean, that has not been the case for Joe Burrow at all at any point this season he has been very consistently explosive like high as you mentioned high completion rate but also completing really difficult challenging downfield 
passes. So it's, uh, I, it's, I just, I would, I just jump in on that for a second. Yeah. Like to put that in perspective, his worst game of the year was a 23, 20 win over Auburn, uh, at home you know what joe burrow stat line that week was 32 for 42 with 321 yards a touchdown and a rushing touchdown like, wow <laughs> even his worst game of the year was some quarterback's best game of the season against a top 10 defense he's just been out of his mind all year that's incredible uh clyde edwards hilaire had a hamstring injury coming into this one and it kind of felt like there was a break glass in case of emergency on his helmet visor all game. He did get in a little bit, ended up with two carries and 14 yards and a few more snaps outside of those carries, but uh, didn't really end up needing him a whole lot in this one. Kind of felt coming in that his him being limited could be big if this was a close game, but it was not a close game and he was not super needed. And I did learn that I guess we're not pronouncing the H, Clyde Edwards Elair, they kept saying on the broadcast, which, you know, I, I'm into it. I dig it. I've, I've got to make the personal adjustment as I've already pronounced the H a couple of times so far today. But uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a fan. I do like the ran. I feel like we get at least one or two just like name changes every year where somebody mm-hmm. just decides like 20 years into their life that they're going to pronounce something a different way. So I'm cool with it. It's always like mix it up a little bit. But I would say Clyde Edwards or Hilaire did, Elair, I'm sorry, did make a pretty big impact because one of the two plays he was in, Bookie Radley Hiles, Oklahoma's nickelback, essentially went in there and hit him with the targeting ah, instead of trying to tackle right. Joe Burrow. And that. All, that pretty much put the game away for Oklahoma. At that point, they were down two of their three best DBs. It was a monumental decision that shifted that drive and kind of turned it into a blowout. So even Clyde Edwards-Hilaire managed to make an impact there as well. So on the losing side of this, we've got Jalen Hurts, who this will be his last college football game, and it's kind of weird to see him go. He's been such a fixture of... He's been involved in so many key moments, pivotal decisions in recent college football history and to see him move on now uh, kind of in a always a bridesmaid never a bride type of role uh, it's it's kind of sad and his comments afterward I don't know if you saw a video of the press conference but he was talking about how you know it's hard because a lot of times when you when you make a mistake you can go back and fix it but this is not delivering Lincoln Riley the national title I promised him when I came here is something I'll never be able to fix. It's just really sad to see him go. Yeah, like I I started the beat I have in 2016 and Jalen Hurts has been there every step of the way. I know his family reasonably well. Uh it it really is sad to see him go. He's kind of like for all the players who have kind of come and gone in college football, their flashes tend to be pretty brief. Uh, the window is short. Players usually go to the NFL. Uh, true freshmen, I guess, outside of the cases of like Trevor Lawrence or somebody that we're seeing now, like Sam Howe, don't often get to play immediately at contenders like they do. I would, I would pretty strongly argue that Jalen Hurts is the defining player of this decade for college football. He's not mm. the best. I don't, I, I don't think he's close to the best. But like when you kind of consider what he did at Alabama... Um, he kind of ushered in an era of true freshman quarterbacks playing earlier than ever. He helped shift Alabama and Nick Saban away from their um, kind of ground and pound stylings of the beginning of that dynasty. Uh, he has been a beacon in the quarterback transfer era as well, moving to Oklahoma, being a Heisman Trophy finalist, along with Justin Fields and Joe Burrow, two other transfer quarterbacks. And just, I don't know, man, the class he kind of 
puts forward, the way he kind of puts himself out there without ever revealing much, but also showing to be one of the kind of most dedicated and passionate and focused individuals you'll see. There's just something about Jalen Hurts that I think is very college football. Uh, he might not emote as some of the other like kind of defining players of their decades or generations like a Tim Tebow. But I think in his own way, Jalen, you have to be a first-team All-American to get into the College Football Hall of Fame. Hopefully, they'll change that one day. But I do think kind of looking back on this in 50 years, people aren't going to really understand Jalen's impact because the stats won't be there. But I really hope J- people remember Jalen Hurts for what he was, which is one of in my opinion, the most important college football players of this millennium. He's just, he's been a pleasure to kind of watch and follow, in my opinion. Man, you know, Jalen Hurts was the player who defined the decade. Sounds like a pretty good headline. Sounds like a headline I'd click on, just saying. (laughs) Um, You know, if you want to go out and write that after we do this or something. But um, maybe maybe I'll knock out a 1 a.m. column. It never hurts. (laughs) Um, So, uh, one other tragic element of this game that we should mention that uh, in, in some ways affected this game is that Carly McCord, who is a reporter for Cox Sports and ESPN, died on her way from uh, Lafayette, Louisiana to Atlanta after the plane she was on attempted to make an emergency landing and ended up crashing. McCord was the daughter-in-law of LSU's offensive coordinator, Steve Ensminger, and uh, Ensminger ended up still going ahead and and working the game and getting the win. And there was uh, Ross Dellinger uh, at Sports Illustrated had a quote from... uh, had a quote uh, that he had a phone call. Ensminger had a phone call with his son, Steve Ensminger Jr., where he said, the team is behind you, the coach is behind you, and we're about to go beat Oklahoma's ass for you. And it's just every time they cut to him up in the booth, I just was so amazed that he was able to continue on under the circumstances. And uh, it's it's a real tragic, tragic situation, tragic note kind of marring this this incredible accomplishment for Ensminger and uh, everybody involved with the LSU program. So um, I put myself in the unfortunate position in making this outline of having to pivot from that note to a much lighter note of talking about the semifinals having been played on December 28th and whether we think in hindsight now it was good or bad. Coming in, there was a lot of criticism that College football was making a big mistake by kind of moving out of that New Year's Day space to accommodate potential conflicts with longstanding bowls like the Rose Bowl. Um, so the the kind of compromise here was we're going to play the game on December 28th because it is at least a Saturday, a day that people are kind of programmatically used to turning into college football games. It was kind of seen that the attempt to do New Year's Eve as the new big college football day was kind of a ratings disaster. And so this is this is a new thing we're trying, Chris. I mean, we don't have the ratings numbers yet, I don't think, but just in kind of in how you experience the day and notice people participating in the conversation online, think this was a success or what yeah i think uh i think the ratings will dictate a lot of that i personally i think it's a little weird it feels like it it does i think it feels odd to not have most some a large chunk of bowls uh not completed at this point before we actually play 
the two playoff semifinals. It just it feels odd. I realize um, this structure is kind of beholden to the Rose Bowl in a lot of ways in that January first date. Uh, and I guess it was good. It's the final uh, kind of weekend of a holiday for most people. Uh, the holiday being on a Wednesday this year was sort of weird. Uh, makes the work schedule odd for people. I'm sure a lot of people are traveling today. But given that you can't have the game on New Year's Day, I think this makes a lot of sense. I think it's better than having it on New Year's Eve. People aren't going to shift their New Year's Eve plans to watch football games. They're not like attached to from a fan base perspective. So I guess this is a good alternative. Um, there's been a bit of a drumbeat uh, to put the game back on New Year's Day. I'm certainly in favor of that. But I, I would imagine, based on what I saw online, kind of the way I talked to some of my friends about the game, that this game will draw a little better than New Year's Eve has in the past just because of the availability to watch it. But I think ultimately um, it would be great to have college football's two most important games of the year back on the day that college football is long to own, which is January 1st. Yeah, I, I do think a lot of the logic of, well, you know, today uh, today is a Saturday, so people are used to wa- watching college football on Saturday is kind of undercut by the fact that we're in, uh, you know, it's been almost a month since we've had regular college football on Saturdays. And the days between Christmas and New Year's Day, I think a lot of America has very little sense of what day of the week it is at any given point during that time. They're just kind of full of cheese and very confused about what's going on. Um, so it's the way I, life should be, Connor. But yes, it does. <laughs> it does make it does make finding the uh, football day confusing for sure. I honestly, I did not realize in this. And I, I know I should. I cover this for a living. I did not realize until this morning that the Cotton Bowl was actually happening today. For some reason in my mind, it was on Monday or something like that. So that's if that's happening with the Cotton Bowl, like that's one of the biggest bowl games of the year. It's weird to have the semifinals kind of sandwiched right here. And 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 this has been chipped away at with some decisions that bowls have made over the years. But it used to be that there was this kind of mounting tension of we are getting bowl games that have increasingly higher stakes, increasingly better teams, and then we cap it all off with the big game that decides it all. And now we're going to go from watching Ohio State and Clemson play an instant classic to on December 30th watching Western Kentucky and Western Michigan in the serve pro first responder ball. <laughs> Those directional powers, man. It's the Western directional powers. Yeah. So I mean, I think I think it puts those bowls in a tough spot to open with the closing act and then the opener that nobody's ever heard of goes on next. And I I, I know. I I I would not be surprised if you see ratings for those bowl games suffer honestly uh i mean we'll see i'm not i'm not a television critic or expert but i'm i'm personally a little bit less enthusiastic about following along with some of the smaller bowls now that i've had a taste of uh uh, of kind of the big time here well it's just it's kind of crazy that like we're we're still a week out from like more than a week out from the final regular season bowl game of the year which is the lending tree bowl pitting Louisiana uh, Lafayette versus Miami, Ohio. Like the fact that that game takes place a week after the semifinals just feels very confusing to me. Like, I mm-hmm. don't understand why 
Louisiana and Miami, Ohio get that stage, whereas the semifinals take place on a random holiday weekend. So I am in complete agreement with you there. Yeah, and uh, about a decade ago, we started getting this creep of very low stakes bowl games being added after that January after the January first games, and I, I have never been a fan of that particularly either. I think. You know, as as people were kind of bemoaning the during the LSU Oklahoma game, yet another uncompetitive semifinal game. Uh, one of the ideas that I saw circulating about how do we fix this was uh, from Jason Kirk at Banner Society about let's just go back to the old plus one idea that we had in BCS times of you play all the bowl games and it's like the regular old bowl system. And then after that, you just pick two more teams to play a national championship. Like, you know, back in, uh, was 1997, I guess it would have been, uh, Nebraska and Michigan would, would play one more game to kind of, kind of break their tie. And, you know, I think that's kind of interesting. It adds a lot of stakes to games that might not have otherwise had stakes and maybe keeps people a little invested. And certainly, you don't have an issue with players skipping nearly so many bowl games if you know, you're know you theoretically still in the hunt. And I say this knowing that we're not undoing the college football playoff. It's just not going to happen. But I, I, I thought that was kind of an interesting idea. Yeah. I, the only, the first, I mean, I'm sure there are multiple um, issues to raise, as there would be with any potential system. I'm not trying to I guess I am trying to poke holes in it, but I'm not trying to dismiss the idea because it's an interesting one. But like, are the bowl committees picking those? Like, are we going back to the times where like the Rose Bowl committee gets to pick its matchup and then like who looks the most impressive versus what opponent is determined by random bowl selections that are more appealing to regional bowl systems? Oh, we're, yeah. We're not likely going to get the best two, best four teams kind of playing in even scenarios there to determine the best two at the end of the day, right? Oh yeah, it's it's very it's a very troubled system, <laughs> and given to all the kinds of uh, suboptimal decisions that uh, uh, bowl committees will make out of their own self interest. But uh, I don't know, it was an idea. I, I thought it was kind of interesting, but yeah, definitely has I, a lot of problems am, and holes in it. I am in favor of anything. I growing up, the bowls were a special time. Making a New Year's Six bowl was just special as a fan at that time. I remember I grew up a Texas fan, dismissed some allegiances as you become a reporter. But like I remember when Texas got in over a cow to the Rose Bowl in 2004, that was such a huge deal to Mac Brown's program. It wasn't the national championship. Texas wasn't playing for a game that really mattered in the college football playoff. But being in that Rose Bowl versus Michigan was gigantic to where that program was going and where it is now. And I just... I don't feel like fans or even players probably feel the same way about reaching a New Year's Six Bowl now. Like I'm sure being in the Sugar Bowl is great for Baylor, but it's not. It doesn't quite carry the same weight now that the college football playoff kind of takes up all the air in the room. And I would, I would love to figure out a way to kind of go back to that time. But as most things go, stuff changes, and I don't think we're ever going to kind of get there again. Yeah, it's and it's kind of interesting because you look at Clemson now, and I feel like a really important moment and Dabo Sweeney building up his program to where it is now was getting into a BCS game, as we called them uh, back in the day, against Ohio State and and beating them in 2014. And uh, this was a period in time where Clemson still had the specter of that 2012 Orange Bowl defeat against West Virginia. I guess that was another BCS game. And winning that game really 
kind of was a moment where Clemson turned a corner. Um, and so it doesn't feel like that platform is so much there anymore for kind of teams that use it as a launching pad because there is such a diminished importance when a, a team like Texas comes out and beats Georgia and beats them soundly, you can very legitimately raise issues about how motivated the other team was even was to be there if they had, you know, their good players playing in the first place. So it's a, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of things in the sport are heading in a good direction. I think undeniably one of the side effects has been kind of kind of bowl season taking a bit of a back seat. Maybe maybe it maybe that's worth some of the gains we've had in areas of like player autonomy and, and things like that. But it's uh this this time of year lately I, I am saddened a bit at at how relatively unimportant the games outside of the college football playoff tend to feel. Not that we at the College Football Daily are taking them any less seriously, except for the two, except for the two bowl games that we forgot due to clerical mistake on my end. We uh, are pre- previewing every single one of these suckers, and that that project is ongoing. So stay tuned to the feed. We'll continue to re- release those as bonus episodes Uh, that's going to do it for today's episode of the college football daily if you appreciate what we're doing please express your support by leaving us a five-star rating on apple podcasts for trey scott chris hummer and our producer tani levitt i'm connor tapp and we'll see you on monday morning for the next edition of the college football daily